Welcome to Season 7, Episode 8 of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the Story Grid method, developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Leslie Watts and Kim Kessler. Before we begin, for anyone who is new to the podcast, Leslie and I have started a side project that we're calling an unpodcast or up, where we take the various storytelling principles that we've been studying here on the roundtable and we apply them to my current novel, Immortal. It's an unpodcast because it's available only to the subscribers of our mailing lists. So if learning how to put these principles into action is of interest to you, you can subscribe at ValerieFrancis.ca slash inner circle or writership.com. Now this week I'm looking at the imitation game in order to study how to integrate a framing story into a global story. This 2014 film was directed by Morton Tildum from the screenplay by Graham Moore. It was based on the 1983 biography, Alan Turing, The Enigma by Andrew Hodges. This was Moore's first screenplay and it won him an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Moore began his career as a novelist and to date has published three titles, The Sherlockian, The Last Days of Night, and The Holdout. Now, I haven't read any of them yet, but I'm absolutely going to because this guy knows story. As always, this is an adult conversation and you may hear some adult words. And this film includes derogatory terms referring to members of the LGBTQIA community. All right, let's get into the story. Usually we start with a summary of the beginning, middle, and end, but the structure of the imitation game is different than anything we've seen on the podcast so far. I think it is anyway. So I thought a discussion of the genre needed to come first so that you understand my breakdown of the beginning, middle, and end. In this film, we have a non-linear framing story with a subplot and a global story with two subplots. And both the framing story and the global story have both internal and external genres. These storylines are woven together seamlessly, and that's what I'm going to focus on today, but first let's look at the genres. So the global story deals with the cracking of the enigma, and I see it as a business performance story with a status admiration internal genre. There's a love story subplot between Alan and Joan, and an espionage crime story dealing with the Russian spy in Hut 8. Now, the framing story is a non-linear crime story told from the criminal's point of view, and it's also got a love story subplot between Alan and Christopher. The internal genre is worldview education with a negative ending. But that said, the imitation game is so much more than the sum of its parts. The story itself is an enigma in many ways, and if there was ever a masterwork for how to use a framing story, this is it. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But for now, here is the breakdown of the beginning, middle, and end. In the beginning hook, Alan Turing is hired to work as part of a team of cryptologists tasked with cracking the German Enigma machine. When his request for parts to build a decoding machine is denied, he must accept his commanding officer's decision or find another way to get the funds. He sends a letter to Winston Churchill and is not only given the money, but is made head of the unit. In the middle build, Alan Turing hires two new people to join his team, and one of them is Joan Clark. 
Turing, with the help of Joan and the rest of the team, eventually builds Christopher, which is the name he's given to his digital computer, named after his childhood love. And they decrypt the Enigma. When he realizes that a passenger convoy is about to be destroyed by German U-boats, he must decide whether to tell Deniston about it, which would save the convoy but lose them the war, likely, or keep it a secret, which would mean that innocent civilians would die but would retain their chance of winning the war. Turing decides to keep his secret, and the people in the convoy, which includes Peter's brother, dies. And Peter, of course, is one of the people on Turing's team. In the ending payoff, together with Joan, Alan approaches MI6 agent Stuart Menzies with a plan to use statistics to win the war as quickly as possible without the Germans discovering that the enigma had been deciphered. When Menzies tricks Alan into becoming a spy, Alan must decide whether to end his engagement with Joan or keep it. He decides to end it to protect her, which is a personal sacrifice for him because he does genuinely care for her. And she seems to be his only real friend. He works with Menzies as instructed and the war ends in victory. Now that's the breakdown of the global story, which is the breaking of the enigma and winning the war. But of course, it's incomplete because I didn't reference the framing story and the framing story is integral here. It can't simply be lopped off in the bridges of Madison County. And I love using this one as an example. The framing story can be deleted entirely without harming the global story. And I've said that before. And I've also said before that it might actually improve the film (laughs) here. Turing eventually committed suicide because he was sentenced to chemical castration by the very government. He sacrificed his happiness and risked his life to serve. That fact is essential to this story. It's the kicker to the whole thing. It's the knife in the heart. It's the bit that makes this story stick with viewers. It's what makes us think and reflect on who we are and what we believe. All right. So, My original intention with The Imitation Game was to look at the three-act structure in light of Sean's new ideas for breaking down the middle build. I mean, that's what I've been studying all season. And I intentionally chose my selections randomly from different genres. I basically flipped through Netflix, and the first three that caught my eye were the three that I chose. Honestly, I'd forgotten that there even was a framing story, and probably because it's so integral to the whole story. That's why it just skipped my mind. So I think that rather than looking at the three acts this week, it's a better use of our time to examine the component parts of this film and how they've been put together to create a cohesive whole. This is advanced storytelling and the filmmakers really, really know their stuff. This is the kind of storytelling you can get into once you have a solid understanding of storytelling fundamentals, both in theory and in practice. Of course, the acting is superb, as is the costume design and all the rest of it. But I'm putting that aside because as novelists, we don't have access to those things. We have words on a page and we have our reader's imaginations. Like, that's it. It's hard to discuss the story structure here without also discussing the genres. I obviously haven't spoken to Graham Moore, so I don't know what his thought process was. What I'm doing is looking at the screenplay that he has written and then I'm reverse engineering it. I'm working backwards. Typically, stories that are based on the life of a person focus on one part of that person's life. 
as writers, we've got to focus on one aspect because a story that spans cradle to grave is going to be too big and too sprawling. So the questions that a writer needs to ask are, where's the story worth telling in this person's life? What's the thing that makes this person's life remarkable and is of interest to a broader audience? Moore could have chosen to write about any number of things in Alan Turing's life because it was remarkable in all kinds of ways. Any one of the plots or subplots could have been a riveting story in itself. In the film, Turing asks Detective Nock to judge who he is. Is he a machine, a person, a war hero, or a criminal? Nock can't make a judgment because Turing is all of these things and more. For example, he's also brilliant academically. In the interview for the job, Commander Denniston calls him a prodigy and his credentials are listed. And just one side note here, the imitation game does a masterful job of using exposition as ammunition. This interview scene is the tip of the iceberg. And if you're a member of the StoryGrid Guild, we've studied this type of scene just recently. So compare what we learned from Sean with this example. It's really interesting. Now, as writers, how do we craft a story about a person who is so fascinating that to leave out any area of their life would you do the person and the story a disservice? Well, first, there are obvious areas of Alan Turing's life that are left out. It's not a moment-to-moment replay of his life, but they included a lot of stuff in it. And the way they did it was by creating a hierarchy. I keep saying that stories have hierarchies, and the imitation game is a terrific example of how multiple genres can be represented in a story and give it depth without jeopardizing the global genre. The part of Turing's life that the storytellers wanted to focus on is the fact that he's the man who cracked the enigma, which enabled the Allies to win the war. That becomes the topic for the global story, and as such, is at the top of the hierarchy. Everything else in the story needs to serve that one goal, and boy, does it ever. They could have portrayed Turing as a war hero and ended the movie once the enigma was cracked. That's the core event of a business performance story. But they didn't. Instead, they chose to put that about halfway through the film, and they made it a huge turning point. We're watching the film to find out how Alan Turing cracked the enigma. That's the part we're waiting for. When it happens, we experience a brief catharsis until we realize that winning the war isn't as simple as decrypting messages from the German military. Performance stories typically have a win-but-lose-lose-but-win ending. In Rocky, Rocky Balboa doesn't win the match, but he goes the distance, which is the best he could have hoped for. In Billy Elliot, Billy gets to study ballet, but he has to leave his family behind. Here, Turing and his team crack Enigma, but they can't use it to save the passenger convoy. They've got to be strategic so that they can win the war as quickly as possible without the Germans discovering that they know how to decrypt the messages. They can save a lot of lives, but not all the lives. Millions on both sides will still die. Turing wants to solve the puzzle, and it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that once he understands how the enigma works, his job is done. Hugh even says that their job was to crack Enigma, but Turing understands that the job is to win the war. 
They started by deciphering a puzzle and they end by playing a chess game with life and death stakes. To end the story with the cracking of the enigma would have only been half of the story. To end the film with the winning of the war would have only been half of Alan Turing's story. Yes, he's absolutely a war hero, but he's also socially awkward, tenderhearted, and brilliant. He's rude and disrespectful, but also capable of deep emotion and love and self-sacrifice. In past episodes, I've talked about developing empathy for the protagonist. I've also said that we've got to get our readers to become emotionally involved with the hero and the story as quickly as possible because that's what hooks them and keeps them reading, or in this case, watching. The imitation game opens with Turing as the accused in a position of being judged. He's in a position of having to defend himself, but we don't know what the charge is yet. He's been burglarized, and since nothing has been taken, he dismisses the bobbies for no apparent reason. Knox suspects him and begins an investigation. As the story progresses, we learn more about Turing's life and the trauma and ridicule he suffered, and our empathy for him deepens. So does our respect and admiration. The whole Enigma story is fascinating, but Turing's story would be incomplete without reference to the charges that were laid against him and the punishment he was forced to endure. However, the charges have nothing to do with the Enigma storyline. So as a writer, how do we approach this? Well, Graham Moore's strategy was to create a framing story that's an integral part of the global story. It's linked thematically, but also has the same protagonist. The film moves around in time. We see episodes from 1928, the the war period, 1939 to 45, and 1951. It includes two main stories, each with their own external and internal genres and multiple subplots. Yet, because there's a common theme running through everything, and it's all about Alan, the movement from one storyline and one time period to another is seamless. Each part of the story informs the next. So, for example, when we see young Alan nailed beneath the floorboards, we better understand who this man is, and it increases our empathy for him. It enhances the wartime parts of the story, as well as the scenes from 1951. The various threads are playing off one another to create narrative drive. Now, I've mentioned theme, but unfortunately, I don't have time to do a thorough analysis of it here on the show. (laughs) This, This show is not a monologue. So I do encourage you to watch the film with theme in mind. Every scene, every character is either an expression of the theme or the anti theme. While you're at it, examine the development of the characters here. They all exist to bring out aspects of Alan's character and they help to make him the multidimensional character that he is. A whole story grid analysis could be done on the imitation game, and, you know, maybe one of these days I'll get around to that. But the bottom line here, for me anyway, is that this is the kind of story you can produce when you understand story structure and how it works. I mean, they took the core event of a performance story, which is usually in the ending payoff, and they made it the midpoint shift of a larger story. And they did it in such a way that it drove the story into high gear. It truly is an amazing piece of storytelling. Okie dokie. That's that's all I have on that for today. Kim, what do you have for us today? 
So I am continuing my examination of core events this season to better understand how to pay off a story's global content genre and the experience our reader is hoping for. The core event is one of four elements in the four core framework that make a content genre the experience that it is. This framework begins with the core need, which is represented by the core values. And then the protagonist pursues their need, which causes these values to shift. And that shift evokes the core emotion in the reader. The core event is the peak moment of this shift and the height of that core emotion. If you're interested in learning more about core events, I encourage you to check out the two new titles available from StoryGrid Publishing, The Four Core Framework by Sean Coyne that explains the fundamental elements for each of the 12 content genres, and Four Core Fiction, an anthology of 12 original short stories written by StoryGrid certified editors, one for each of the 12 content genres, and globally edited by myself and Rebecca Monterusso. Okay, so let's dig into today's genre and today's story. It was not easy to come to a decision about the global genre for the imitation game, as I'm sure it's made very clear by Valerie and all of the layers that's been going on. There are multiple genres at play here, right, across multiple timeframes. Most notably to me, there are elements of the three esteemed tank genres. We have performance, society, and status. This fits in with the war genre that we see as well, which while it stems from the safety tank, it also is closely related because of the values of honor and dishonor and victory and defeat. And war also contains a baked-in society aspect, and society contains a baked-in crime aspect. So while it's not global, that crime genre is part of that framing device in the story, and these swirling layers are really enough to make your head spin. But through all of that, ultimately, I landed on status admiration. Despite the circumstances of his tragic death, this genre seems to best represent the legacy of Alan Turing's life that the filmmakers wanted to share. I found an interview with the screenwriter Graham Moore and the director Morton Tildum in which they talk about the narrative device of the three different time periods and their intent to present the emotional truth of Alan Turing's life, even if it meant taking liberties with certain historical accuracies. So again, status admiration seems to be in line with their intent. As a refresher, here is the cause and effect statement for the status admiration genre. When a sympathetic protagonist with nobility of character and motive, along with a sophisticated worldview, encounters misfortune but maintains their strength of thought and character, they will rise in spite of it. The four core framework for a status story is as follows. The core need is respect. The core values are success and failure. The core emotion is admiration or pity, depending on the subgenre. And the core event is the big choice. This is the moment where the protagonist must choose to either sell out their personal code in order to achieve success or adhere to their personal code despite the outcome. Here's a quote from the Story Grid Beat, The Four Core Framework by Sean Coyne. The universal takeaway or controlling idea of a status story is staying true to one's own values Whether or not this leads to social betterment defines success. But if one sells out, exchanging their values for meaningless rank, praise, or acquisitions, the result is failure. 
One thing that struck me was the fact that we are experiencing this story from a place of hindsight, recognizing the value of Alan Turing's life and the contribution of his work alongside the persecution and injustice that he faced. In spite of the tragic ending, as an audience, I think we do admire him rather than pity him. But that said, while this controlling idea rings very true overall, I did have trouble pinpointing a singular moment that encompasses it and pays off our audience expectations. Here's a few that I looked at and and wrestled with. So we have that moment when they crack the code, which is significant and something we've been waiting for, which is a major turning point in the story and leads to that global crisis of what do we do with this information? That dilemma is dramatized with the young member, the youngest member of the team who has a brother on one of the ships. As members of the team scramble to use the phone in an effort to stop the attack, Alan intervenes and smashes the phone so that no one can call. He takes a punch for it, but then calmly explains that they can't tell anyone that they've succeeded or all their efforts will be in vain. Alan is willing to be unpopular in order to do the right thing. There's another moment in the ending payoff that signifies this as well. When Alan finds the MI6 agent Menzies searching his house and is told that Joan is in a military prison for selling secrets to the Soviets, Alan reveals that he knows the identity of the spy, that it's Karen Cross. He didn't turn him in before because Karen Cross threatened to out Alan to his superiors if he did, which would have meant Alan would have been kicked out and unable to continue his work. But believing that Joan was in danger, he offered up the information to save her. He chooses potential ruin to keep her safe. But then he learns that Joan is not, in fact, in prison, but is out shopping. Menzi tells Alan that he is going to include him as part of his misinformation scheme to keep anyone from finding out that they broke Enigma and also getting information to their allies despite Churchill's orders not to. Then we see Alan break off his engagement with Joan in an effort to keep her safe, outing himself to her and telling her that he never cared for her. This is a proof of love moment, and it's in line with Alan's status admiration genre. She slaps him and rebukes him, and she refuses to leave Bletchley, but at least she is no longer connected with him and hopefully will be less of a bargaining piece to manipulate him. Finally, we see the moment when Alan is convicted of public indecency and given the choice to go to prison for two years or to undergo chemical castration. He chooses the latter so that he can continue his work. Alan Turing has a moral obligation to his gift and work, and he holds that as his highest code. Much like Maximus, he had to learn to compromise his rigid method of defeating an enemy as a general of a great army. Alan is able to compromise his rigid method of working alone and instead learns to work as part of a team, which enables them to achieve their ends and win the war against Germany. So because of the layers of the esteem tank happening here, it's difficult for me to parse out the ending payoff. For a story that was criticized by some for being too tidy, I don't know that the ending payoff in the core event came through in a tidy way necessarily. The experience is less like a core moment and more like a an overall takeaway impression. It also struck me that the story ends with the strong sentiment of worldview education and worldview disillusionment. And it's it seems to show how important it is to understand your significance in the world, something that Alan struggles with in the ending of the story. 
And this makes sense because so much about obtaining esteem, recognition, and respect ties to how we view ourselves. If we can see our significance, our value, and our place of contribution in the world, the better we can navigate obtaining and meeting our needs for esteem, recognition, and respect without putting conditions on our gift, being co-opted, or selling out. But if not, if we lose our significance, our value, or contribution, we will not be able to meet those needs. In fact, the conclusion I, I finally came to at the end of all of this wrestling is that it's almost as if the final superimposed text at the end of the film serves as the core event for the audience. And here's what those words state. After a year of government-mandated hormonal therapy, Alan Turing committed suicide on June 7, 1954. He was 41 years old. Between 1885 and 1967, approximately 49,000 homosexual men were convicted of gross indecency under British law. In 2013, Queen Elizabeth II granted Turing a posthumous royal pardon, honoring his unprecedented achievements. Historians estimate that breaking Enigma shortened the war by more than two years, saving over 14 million lives. It remained a government-held secret for more than 50 years. Turing's work inspired generations of research into what scientists called Turing machines. Today, we call them computers. So this is the moment when the world and the audience of the film recognizes and respects the actions of a man who gave his gift unconditionally and upheld his moral code despite adversity and persecution. And now, because society has changed, we are able to recognize Alan Turing and the significance and contribution of his life to history. That was awesome, Kim. Thank you. The genre is, it's hard, right, to parse this apart. It really, um, it really flexes our story grid muscles. <laughs> um, Leslie, I hope you are continuing with point of view and narrative device this week. What have you got for us? Well, of course, I'm continuing my study of point of view and narrative device. And this is a really great story for this, as you've pointed out. So if genre is what your story is about, then point of view and narrative device are how you deliver your story to the reader or viewer. And that's why I firmly believe that your point of view and narrative device choices are the most important decisions you make after the global genre. So the narrative device or situation answers these questions. Who or what is telling the story and to whom? When and where are they telling the story? And why are they telling the story? The point of view is the technical element, which tells us whether it's first person or third person, for example. It answers the question, how do we create the effect of the narrative device we've chosen? Now, these two elements of the story perspective must be in sync or your story can be undermined. So what's more, point of view and narrative device give you valuable constraints to make decisions about what you include in your scenes and how, not at random or based on a whim, but to support and enhance your story. Now, I explore this in my upcoming story grid beat on point of view, as well as in my bite-sized episode on choosing your point of view, and I'll include links to that episode and my point of view articles in the show notes. 
So I start my analysis by asking about the opportunity presented by the premise. A story's premise describes a specific character or characters in a setting with a problem. Now, as Valerie and Kim have both explained, we have multiple storylines in the imitation game. But the two that I see as most significant for purposes of point of view and narrative device are the global performance story and the crime story. So the performance story involves a mathematician who is part of a team tasked with cracking the Enigma machine code to prevent German attacks on the Allied forces during World War II. We feel the triumph that the team feels when they solve that problem, which in a way fortifies us for the harder truth of facing the way that Turing was treated. I see the crime story from a slightly different perspective. To me, the crime is committed against Turing by society as represented by the Manchester police detective. Turing faces the problem of exposing the criminal to itself in an attempt to obtain justice in 1951. And to do this, he tells a story. If you combine the premise of the performance and crime stories, then we have the opportunity to explore an even bigger question. How can we prevent society from suppressing and chilling the expression of the gifts of individuals simply because they are different? When it is our combined gifts that help us solve the near impossible problems that we face and that threaten our survival. Wow, that's really a mouthful. So if I break it down a little so you can understand it better, how do we prevent society from getting in the way of people doing their best work? Because when everyone is doing their best work, we have the best shot at solving the problems that threaten our survival, like pandemics and racism, for example. So that's the narrative opportunity presented by the premise. What's the point of view? Turing's meetings with Nock would be a first-person narrative on the surface, but when we are in the scenes from his past, it feels more like selective omniscience that's also called close third point of view. In In a way, we get the best of these two different points of view because the framing story is helping us to see the events from multiple perspectives in time. So that's the point of view. What's the narrative device? Well, the narrative device is clear and overt here. So the who, to whom, when, where, and in what form are clear. Alan Turing tells his story to Robert Nock in the context of a police interview to answer the police detective's question, what did you really do during the war? The interview happens in an interrogation room in 1951, and the circumstances are that the war is over and Turing is working in Manchester but no one is allowed to talk about the success of their work to solve the Enigma problem during the war. So that's the narrative device. Now, I often say that the controlling idea should align with or make sense in light of the narrator's purpose in telling the story. 
So on the surface, Turing is explaining what he did to get himself released from custody. But the bigger why seems to address what I identify as the controlling idea of the story, which is shame and tyranny reign when the system is the perpetrator, suppressing the gifts of individuals that would benefit society. Now, the film shows us how vital Turing's gifts were to the war effort. As Kim mentioned, it's estimated that the combined efforts shortened the war by two years and saved the lives of 14 million people. Now, who knows what other problems Turing might have solved had he not been prosecuted for being different? And if we're paying attention, we can't help but ask What benefits to society are we losing today because society suppresses the gifts of those who are different? So how well does this narrative device and and point of view choice work in this story? How well do the creators leverage the opportunity presented by the premise? Well, I think the narrative situation is a stroke of genius. The performance story alone wouldn't deliver the same message with the same level of impact that we get when it's combined with the crime story. Again, we feel the triumph of the team's success, and we understand the contribution that Turing made. We get the impression though, that it was a very near thing. There were many moments when Turing could have been derailed by others who didn't understand his value because he was different. So again, we feel the triumph, but we also feel the shame because of the way society suppresses gifts. The story allows us to see the same events from different points in time, and it allows us to get the bigger message of the story and possibly change our behavior. Now, this story is worthy of further study, especially if your global story needs another story or two to provide different perspectives, not just from different characters, but from different times and relative to different events. The crime story allows us to step back and see the real harm that happens when the gifts of individuals are suppressed, and I can't help but think that Alan Turing would be really proud of the story. Thank you, Leslie. That was incredible. Yes, this story does warrant further study. Absolutely no argument from me there. Okay, we like to round out our discussions with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. Kim, what have you learned this week? My big takeaway today is how knowing the heart of what you're trying to convey and that core emotional experience that you want your reader to have can guide your decision making, especially when the story is multifaceted and complex. Using your intent and theme as your core will allow you to explore multiple timeframes and even genres while still presenting a coherent and meaningful narrative. From my perspective, when you consider point of view and narrative device choices, don't be afraid to look at a wide range of possibilities. Definitely look at masterworks in novels, short stories, films, and long-form TV. 
And then look at your story from different perspectives too. Consider who could tell the story and in what form. And write practice scenes so you can see the effect that you create with different choices. You will make a better decision if you cast a wider net. For me, honestly, the imitation game has so many lessons. It just goes on and on. But the key takeaway for me this week is this. We've got to make sure that we thoroughly understand story structure and the elements of storytelling so that we know how to use them to tell the story that we want to tell. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Alyssa McCall on the Story Grid Guild. Alyssa writes, I'm interested in hearing about your individual processes when it comes to tackling your visions. Kim, what are your processes when you tackle your visions? Thank you for your question, Alyssa. Before I share my process for revisions, I have two important points that I want to mention upfront. First, while the storytelling principles are universal, your method of processing information and making decisions is unique, and so your revision process will likely be as unique as your ideation and drafting process. And while it can be fun and useful to hear other people's processes, be careful not to try to shoehorn your brain into a process that isn't a good fit. The goal of all of this is to give your gift and share your story with others. So please use whatever process you need to make that happen. If my brain's way of doing things helps you find your brain's way to do that, I'm very, very glad. The other thing is that before you can aptly determine your process for revisions, it's important to understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish. What is the standard of success that you are measuring against? Is it a specific craft principle? Is it a specific reader experience? Is it a specific deadline? What is the proverbial cost time and quality triangle when it comes to your story? If you can only have two, what are you willing to sacrifice? So knowing what matters to you is really important when you set out to craft a story or else how will you know when you're done? Okay, so with that, here is a bit about my personal writing process when it comes to handling revisions. Whatever the medium, my brain approaches crafting a story like a filmmaker with three distinct phases, pre-production, production, and post-production. Now, production, for me, is the drafting phase when I record my story scene by scene in prose. But any good filmmaker will tell you that the most important phase is pre-production. That's the work that you do before you hit record. Too many filmmakers just want to get shooting, so they invariably say, don't worry, we'll fix it in post. But post-production can only fix so much. But today, we're not making a film. We're writing a novel. So our post-production process is different. We don't have to bring the actors back in afterwards to reshoot something that we can't actually fix in post. We just get to write a new scene. And this is great news. But it's also a caution because without clear constraints from the beginning, it's difficult to tell what is working and not working. We need a standard to measure against. Masterwork, anyone? And this is why the StoryGrid method and tools are so valuable. They give us a means to measure what's working for specific aspects of our story. Okay, so for me, it's difficult to talk about revisions without talking about pre-production ideation, and outlining, because that is when my revisions begin. I vet my global story countless times before I ever 
record my draft. In the interview with Graham Moore that I mentioned earlier, he talked quite a bit about his writing process where he creates iterations of the story, each one longer than the next. What is the story in one sentence? What is the story in five sentences? In a page? In 20 pages? This is similar to what pre-production looks like for me, or as some may call it, the zero draft. I revise my story over and over and over during this time until my global story has a spine and my fool's cap rings true. From here, I work my way through the other units of story, acts, sequences, scenes, and continue to revise my ideas until I have a solid idea of what each scene in my scene list should be about. From here, I can finally shift to production, the capturing of each scene on the page. And this, for me, is the most painful part of the process. After I have a draft, I will happily jump into post-production where, in film terms, we have a screening party and watch the rough cut together. In novel terms, this means reading the draft you have without making any changes and asking your trusted editing friends to read it also. Then you share notes about what is working and what's not and decide on a course of action. Because of the amount of global revisions that I tackle in pre-production, the draft is reasonably close. A global story structure exists, scenes mostly turn, etc. So this is where I can shift my revision lens from macro to micro, looking at each scene as its own unit of story to ensure it's doing what the global story needs it to do. Once my scene order is locked down, I and my editor refine the lens even more and go beat by beat and line by line to highlight the theme and controlling idea and the reader's mental and emotional experience. I don't stop revising until I feel with conviction that the story produces the emotional effect in the reader that I intended. I hope this is useful to you, Alyssa. If you want to talk more about revisions or if you're stuck on your project, I invite you to join me each month for a free editing workshop. Go over to KimberKessler.com to get access. Thanks so much. If you have a question about integrating framing stories or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to StoryGrid.com resources and clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you so much, Leslie and Kim, for your excellent editorial insights into the imitation game. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about incorporating framing stories into your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. As a reminder, if you're interested in the unpodcast that Leslie and I do, you can subscribe at valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle or writership.com. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time when Leslie will look at point of view and narrative device in the film. You ready for this? Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Woohoo! Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? That is, if you can't already recite it like me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.